Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. I'm normally joined by Dominique Day, but this week we're sharing a recording that was made at one of my clinics. Normally in April, I'm traveling to give clinics, but needless to say, the coronavirus has put a stop to that. I've had to cancel all of my spring clinics, and who knows what the summer is going to bring. So I'm missing my clinics, and I'm missing the gathering of clicker trainers. Clicker training attracts the very nicest of people. That's certainly true of the clinics that Cindy Martin hosts at her farm in Arkansas. We normally have two clinics at her place every year, one in the spring and one in the fall. And at the end of these clinics, we've started a really lovely tradition. Several of our clinic regulars normally stay on and travel home the following day. So in the evening after dinner, I set up the computer get out my microphone, and we record a clinic wrap-up. Last week's podcast shared the wrap-up that we recorded in April of 2019. The following morning, we got out the microphone again. This time, the conversation was with Cindy Martin and Mary Hunter. We've done several podcasts with Cindy, so you already know what a treasure she is. Cindy combines a great practical knowledge with a tremendous amount of research. If she becomes interested in a subject, she doesn't just read the cliff notes. She dives right in, taking courses, reading books, tracking down references. And as we've seen through these podcasts, she is wonderfully generous in sharing what she learns. Last week, you met Mary Hunter. At the time that we made this recording, Dominique and I were working with Mary to create our new Listen and Learn audio course. I thought this recording would be a great way for you to get to know Mary. I had no idea that it was going to take over a year to complete the course, so I've kept today's podcast tucked away, waiting, waiting until we could announce that the course was available. So let me give you a brief introduction to Mary, and then we'll jump right in. Many of you will already know Mary through her blog, StaleCheerios.com. I've been reading her blog for years, and I really love it. Mary is such a good writer. She's very clear. She's very easy to read. And she always makes these really interesting connections between the animals that she's working with, whether that's with horses or with dogs or with their pet rats. She always makes these really interesting connections between the training that she's doing and the behavioral concepts that support that training. Mary has a master's degree in applied behavioral analysis from the University of North Texas, where she now teaches undergraduate courses in behavioral analysis. She is the president of the Art and Science of Animal Training organization and she organizes the annual conference of that same name. She and Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz recently published the portal manual together, and they have a great website, behavioralexplorer.com. So when Dominique and I began to talk about doing an audio course on behavioral analysis, Mary was the obvious and perfect choice. She's been a delight to work with, and we look forward to many more collaborations. Mary has also been a regular attendee at the Arkansas clinics hosted by Cindy Martin, and at this spring clinic, she had decided to stay over on Monday night and drive home the following day, so we were able to squeeze in this extra conversation before we both had to leave. It turned into one of our usual long conversations. The only reason we stopped was because I had a plane to catch. I'm going to split the conversation into two podcasts. I'll just let you know in advance that that's what I'm going to do. 
Mary is our portal master. So when we get to the discussion of portal, that's where I'm going to stop. I'm going to make you wait for another week to hear what she has to say about that. So in this week's podcast, there's a fascinating discussion of emotions and emotional behavior. What is the distinction between those two? But before we get to that, I asked Cindy Martin to explain the metaphor of the split in the church. And Cindy's going to share with us what that means. If you want to learn more about our new Equosity Listen and Learn audio course, An Introduction to Behavioral Analysis, just visit our website, equosity.com. There you can read more about it, and you can also register for the course. Again, that's equosity.com. And so now without any further introduction, let's jump into today's podcast. Today is a really fun recording because I'm in Arkansas at Cindy Martin's farm for our spring clinic. We've just finished up three just glorious days of working with a phenomenal, phenomenal group of people. I love these gatherings where this community of clicker trainers and we're all there for the horses and we, everyone is understanding the work and and you don't have to justify your choices or explain to anybody why you've chosen clicker training. You just get to dive into it and and explore it and see where the questions and the people take us. And this clinic in particular was a special treat because not only is Cindy Martin hosting it, and Cindy, you are a phenomenal host and you make everybody feel so welcome, but also Mary Hunter joined us. And so it was really fun on this course to have you here so that whenever, anytime anybody asked one of those questions that was more in that area of the science of behavioral analysis, I could just turn to you and say, so Mary, would you like to take that one? And that was, it was just so much fun to be able to share the teaching. So I had I had Cindy that I could turn to for all of your wonderful metaphors and stories and the clarity of your teaching. And I had Mary that I could turn to and I said, so Mary, how about adding some something to that discussion? And I think one of the first places that came up was the whole discussion of classical conditioning and the emotions. And, and so I turned to you and asked for that explanation of the emotions. But before we get to that, and I don't know, Cindy, you may, you may, you may not want me to, to, to say this, but could you explain the metaphor of the split in the church for us? Because I, and the reason I'm asking for that is we've both been looking at this work for quite a long time now and you're phenomenal at researching various techniques and procedures you're very knowledgeable about what is going on in the dog training world as well as the horse training world and so you can track back and if somebody is talking about we this morning we were talking about one of the dog training techniques and you could track back and say well this came from this trainer and this trainer and here was the origin of it and I think that's so important in understanding what the core idea was what the intent of the person who developed that idea or developed a particular procedure what their intent was and then all the ways in which it got used and the game of telephone occurred. And so now as we're talking about certain procedures and you look at it with that background, you think, how did we ever get from here to there? Or how did we get these two groups of people who evolved out of the same core procedure, but who can no longer talk to one another? And that's really the main thing. So what's that metaphor about? I studied Russian in college. Soviet history and a bit of Russian history. And Russia was separated from Western Europe for a number of centuries 
And when they sort of regained contact with Western Europe, the people in the Russian, what became the Russian Orthodox Church, when they met with the people from the Greek Orthodox Church, they found that there were certain procedural differences in how they went about their practices and how many fingers they used to make the sign of the cross, slight changes in various symbols that were very important to them, and they ended up becoming separate churches. And I've noticed that there's a tendency for that in the training world of how people have gone off to apply the core principles and laws of behavior and learning that we've you know learned from that Skinner identified and described and people can become very attached to that practice that application and very focused on how that is the right way and they overlook the fact that it all came from a common source and so sometimes when I'll see I'll encounter procedural differences and even some differences in principle within the wider positive reinforcement training community, I want to understand where that came from so that I can make an informed decision about which procedure I want to take to my animals and see how they feel about it. And so I refer to that as the split in the church. And there have been some splits in the church of behavior science or positive reinforcement training. training. Right, right. I would say the different camps where people find it's acceptable to use a marker signal multiple times before providing a primary reinforcer. The idea that the click stands alone as because it is a quote secondary reinforcer and then they're the folks that feel that the click has a unique role among secondary reinforcers because it serves as a cue as well as a secondary reinforcer. That's one example. Yeah. Blazing clickers. Blazing clickers, right. And since we have sitting to my to 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 my so sitting to my right is is Cindy and sitting to my left is Mary. Since we have Mary right here, Mary, would you like to sort of do the quick the click is a cue. Why do we? Why? Why do we treat every after every click? What is the data telling us? What do we base that on? So why we want to follow every single click or marker by a treat, or you know, if there's a different type of reinforcer we're using, we can use that as well. Is because, like Alex said, the click is both a conditioned reinforcer that serves to um, mark and reinforce the behavior that's just occurred, but it also cues the whole food delivery process for both the horse and for the human. And actually, if you look back in the early research and early um, laboratory work, you actually can find instances of them talking about the click as a cue. Of course, they're not using a clicker, but in the experiments with the rats and the pigeons in the labs, let's just take a rat. There'd be a lever for the rat to press, and then when the rat had done the behavior, had done the behavior a certain amount of times, it's called the food magazine, where the food comes out, would make a noise, and then the rat would go over, and it would be able to get a piece of food from the tray. But they talk in the literature about how that sound of the food tray is both a reinforcer for the behavior that was occurring, but it's also a cue for the rat to leave the lever and come over there and collect the food. And if it's not serving as a good cue, what you have is you'll get a rat who comes over and checks before he's finished the behavior or spends all his time at the food tray trying to anticipate when the next treat is coming if he doesn't understand that connection yet. And, and it's not just for food as when we're using a reinforcer that's food because someone might say, well, that's, that's fine, but I use toys because I'm working with my dog and my dog's not interested in food, so my reinforcers are toys. But it does, it's, it's the, 
the click is a cue for the reinforcement process. I'm going to interrupt for a second, if you don't mind. I wanted to give an equine example of the click as a cue for a non-food reinforcer. We have a donkey, Sammy, and he loves to have the underside of his tail stroked. He likes that almost better than food. And so if I'm doing something and I click, he will swing around and present his hindquarters to me, which some people might find threatening, but I know that we have this process. And I will then reach under his tail and stroke the underside of his tail. He doesn't swing his hindquarters over until I've clicked. So that's a, a non-food equine example where the click clearly tells the animal, now you need to prepare to receive reinforcement. We didn't get the mic moved in time to catch the next question, which was about using different marker signals to indicate different reinforcers. So you might click for food, but then say, get it, when you're going to reinforce with, say, the toss of a tennis ball. Of course, there we're talking about training dogs. So I don't know if there's been any formal research about whether it accelerates the learning. So that's something that we would have to go to our horses to ask them. But I, I do know, especially the dog sports people are using it a lot now, the different, using different markers to cue different reinforcers or different ways to deliver reinforcers. So that can be a really clear way to do it so that the animal knows if I click, that means you're going to hand me a piece of food. If you say yes, that means you're going to throw the ball. If you do something else, that means you're going to toss a treat. That, so that's one, one system you can use. But, but we can also use the click and then depending on the context and depending on our body language, um, the animal knows that we're stepping into one type of reinforcer delivery versus with different body language and in a different context. I'm not sure if this is true or not, Cindy would have to tell us, but it may be, you know, if she's been using food as a reinforcer in a certain context, she can click and Sammy would stick out his nose for a treat. But in another context, if she's been using with the t using the, the tail scratching, the her body language and the context cues when she clicks, he immediately starts moving his hind end over to get the scratches. And she's nodding her head, so do you want to add anything? No, okay. And, and that goes back to one of the studies that Jesus did, and it was on jackpots. And the, the setup for the jackpot was the trainer was sitting on a very tall kitchen stool and there was at her feet there was a food bowl and she was dropping the treats into the food bowl and her little dog was a Boston Terrier I think. There was a, a target that was taped to the wall of the other side of her kitchen and the dog would go out to the target, touch the target, she would click the dog would come back to the bowl and get the treat. And in the course of the jackpot study, she would periodically drop not one treat, but five to 10 treats into the food bowl. And they would bounce, and they would bounce out of the food bowl, and it would take the dog longer to get the treats. And so it was messing up her data. She decided that a very clever way to do this would be to get a very long PVC pipe, and she would just drop the treat down into the pipe and <clears throat> that way the treats would would not bounce out of the bowl so she had her her setup she's sitting on the stool she's got her pvc pipe the dog goes out touches the target she clicks and very quietly because the pipe is right next it's very long and she doesn't have to move her hands very much she just drops a piece of treat down into the bowl it doesn't make the plunk sound that it normally would make the dog is looking at her, doesn't hear the that little plunk of the treat, doesn't see the movement of her hand, is totally confused, doesn't know what to do, what just happened, where's my treat, tries to touch, touches the target again. She's not sure what to do. Do I click? Do I not click? And, and 
I think he touched the target again. She may. It's been a while since I've watched it. she clicked again. She clicked again. She dropped the treat in the bowl. The dog mm -hmm. is completely confused. This There may have been another repetition, and then he just left the room. And what it showed was how clearly that click was a cue, and it was an orientation cue. That dog, at, and it, when you slowed down the video, you could see that as she clicked, he would glance back to her to see what, where the treat was going to be, how it was going to be delivered. So if this was a dog who knew sometimes the food is, is thrown, he would glance back at the handler to say, ah, I need to head out in that trajectory because the treat's gonna be heading off towards the, you know, three o'clock over my shoulder, or I need to come into my handler to get the treat. And, and so, it's not a, it, it's a chain of behaviors that unfolds after that marker signal. That's exactly what I was going to say. So we, we often think of reinforcers as things. So the reinforcer is the treat, we click, and then we follow it with the thing that's the reinforcer. But that's a really good example of how it's the reinforcement delivery as a process and a chain of behaviors on the part of both the trainer and the animal. So the dog touches the target, in this example, click, and the click is a cue for the behavior of the dog turning around and looking at the handler. And when the dog looks at the handler, that's a cue for the handler to toss the treat in the bowl. And then the treat landing in the bowl is a cue for the dog to go over to the bowl and get the treat. I'll just say from the perspective of and the applied world, working with the animals, for example, with my dog, I had to teach her to track and go after a tossed treat. You have, we should say, what breed she is. So, you know, in terms of vision and all the rest of that. Right. So my dog matters. is a bull terrier, and her eye placement on her head and the shape of her head actually makes her a lot more like a horse. Uh, so I have to go through a teaching process with every bull terrier I have ever clicker trained to show them how to follow my hand and track where the treat's going to go. Once they understand it, it's not a problem. They learn to watch my hand, but they don't automatically do it like many dogs do. And it wasn't a problem for me because I was already aware of that with horses, that they don't automatically track their food. So we have to make it really clear and deliberate, very predictable, so they understand where the reinforcer's coming from. And I think that's something that a lot of people either take for granted or they get caught up in the idea of variability and reinforcement as a good thing, so they, they are not clear and predictable, reliable for their learners about where the reinforcement, what the reinforcement process is going to be in a specific moment. And I have found, particularly my friend Porter, made it very clear that having the reinforcement portion of the behavior cycle very consistent and very reliable. That didn't mean it was the same every time, but that he he didn't have to worry about uh, uh, where, uh, uh, where's the, where's that, where's it, where's my treat. It was I could move very slowly, very deliberately. He's not looking around trying to figure out is this a time she's going to actually hand me a treat or not. So for him, that was a big part of helping him emotionally settle down and be more comfortable and be able to participate in the training, that I kept that part of the behavior cycle very reliable. And I think that sometimes that can be an issue with some of the horses that get very agitated in their clicker training, is when that part of the behavior cycle is not steady and reliable. Like if we're shaping, and we're constant, you know, we're, we're frequently changing and raising criteria on the behavior. And then we're also unpredictable about the reinforcement process. The animal's trying to figure out two of these different parts of the process. 
And that's a lot to keep track of. And, and when we're first introducing the whole concept of the clicker training to our horses, the reinforcement chain part of, part of that cycle is a very simple one. And we're, we're standing close to the horse. So the time that it takes us to click and then to reach into our treat pouch, our pocket, food bowl, whatever we're using, and then present the food in such a way that the horse can either take it from our hand or collect it from a bowl. There's not a lot of time. There's not a lot of distance traveled. There's not a lot of behavior occurring between the click and the actual ingesting of the food. So we sometimes think of it as, oh, it's just the food, and it's not a more complex series of events that are occurring. But over time, with an experienced clicker-trained horse, and we've talked about this on the podcast, with an experienced clicker-trained horse, we may be at a distance from the horse. If we're riding, the horse has to stop and we so that we can get the treat out of our pocket and lean down and the horse brings his head around to the side, etc. There's a lot of behavior that is occurring with the dogs. If you are using a toy, there's a comp- if you're using, say, a tug toy, I've watched Cindy with her bull terrier here and you use uh, tug toys quite a lot in, as a reinforcer. And there's that's quite a trained and learned process because the dog has to not just engage on the tug toy, but the dogs have to know how to let go of the tug toy. And so it's some of these reinforcement processes are quite complex. And if you're using toys or food like uh, they do in the dogs, you could easily have different marker signals that say, oh, now we're going to do a tug, now we're going to have food, or the context, this behavior, I always use food for it. This behavior, I'm going to, you know, you're going to expect a toy. Or my body language tells you. There will be some indicator that says to the dog, whether it is the context, the, the, the overall context, or some body language cue, or it's embedded in the marker itself, that reliably tells the animal what to expect. I think it's the reliable part that is the critical one. We had another question that the mic didn't pick up. It was about the use of treatless clicks. Why do some trainers use them? I'm, I'm going to jump in on that with a classic, and, and then I may hand it off to Mary for the, uh, the perspective of the behavioral analysis. But John Lyons, when people would ask him about other people's training methods, John had the best answer. He said, you know, I have enough trouble trying to explain what I'm doing without trying to explain what someone else is doing. And I know early on in the training, I experimented with treatless clicks because when Gary Wilkes paired up with Karen Pryor, and Gary was the canine behaviorist who went to Karen and said, so do you think this clicker training, actually they didn't call it clicker training probably at that point, but do you think this would work with dogs? And Karen said, oh, sure, yes, of course. And they teamed up together and gave a series of seminars. And one of the techniques that Gary used was treatless clicks. And looking back on it, I would say that the reason that Gary was using them what treatless clicks got Gary was they frustrated his cattle dog enough because the treatless clicks put her in a bit of a extinction process that it got her behavior to vary and that that's what he used in part in his shaping process and because Megan had such a broad repertoire of behaviors that she very quickly would shift to something that he could then reinforce. And then, and when he reinforced that correct, I've shifted to this new behavior, he would click and, and treat that. And so we saw early on, I saw the treatless clicks being modeled. So 
Of course, I went home and asked my horses. It's go to people for opinions and horses for answers. I asked my horses about them. And one of the things that Gary had very much talked about was be careful about falling into patterns. That our animals are really good at picking up patterns and humans are really good at falling into patterns. And if you're using treatless clicks, you have to be very careful about not falling into a pattern. Because if you click once, click twice, click third time, click the fourth time and treat, and that's your pattern, it's sort of like the people who say, sit, 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 sit. And, and that whole unit becomes a cue, a very clumsy cue, but that whole unit then becomes the cue. And unless you get go through all four iterations of, of sit in those tones, your animal may not have a clue what you're asking for. But in any event, he was warning us about don't fall into patterns. So I went home and asked my horse what he thought of treatless clicks. And we were working, I was under saddle, and we were working on shoulder in, and he gave me a lovely moment of you know lifted up through in this lovely feel underneath me and I clicked and I reinforced it and then the next time I and immediately picks up again and and I'm thinking okay I want to click that but I just reinforced so I won't reinforce this time and then I asked again and he gave me a nice he picked up and and I thought well what do I do if I click should I treat should I not treat and and it just he was getting frustrated, but I was getting even more frustrated because I thought this is just too much processing. It's unclear, but it's also, so to avoid falling into a pattern, if it was good enough to click, it's good enough to reinforce. And while I'm trying to figure out, is this particular version of the example of the behavior that he just gave me that was really nice, well, but I just clicked the last, clicked and treated the last two times, so maybe I shouldn't click and treat this time. But I'm trying to process all of that, and I'm assessing the quality of the movement that I was just riding. It was, it was too much. So if I'm going to be assessing the quality of the movement, this nuance of movement that I'm just riding, I need the predictability of I'm going to click and give you a treat, not I've just done calculus over here and now I've moved to quantum mechanics on the other side of the click. Oh my goodness. And so what I personally, what I chose and the reason that, that I went down that split in the church was it gave me that clarity, the predictability, the reliability. I could focus on what is the criterion that I'm going to reinforce. And what I found is that if it was a particularly good moment, I might give a little bit more. Or if he gave, if it was, if there was a lot of effort, if it was a long unit of behavior, I probably, when I reached into my pocket, would give a larger handful. If I'm working on something that is a very targeting is an easy one. The horse touches the target, I click and treat. Horse touches the target again, I click and treat. I'm probably feeding one hay stretcher pellet for each of those, but the rate of reinforcement is very high. If I'm going down a whole long side of the arena in shoulder in and then I click and treat, I'm reaching into my pocket and I'm pulling out a lot more hay stretcher pellets for that unit of behavior. That for me was more manageable than keeping track of these patterns. And what I would say is, you know, I was watching Gary, that would have been 1992 or three. That's a long time ago. We were just learning about this technology. And so the procedures that we had, the pool of, of ways to go about getting behavior was a really small one. And so this is how Gary got behavior to vary. Fair enough. I'm not saying this as a criticism at all. I'm saying this is where we were. And what I found with the horses is I had other ways that I could get behavior to vary. And over the years, we have come up with so many other techniques, procedures that we can use that help us in our shaping process that 
for me, the clarity of the click is a cue, that makes so much sense to me. The click is a cue. The effect of cues works in two directions. The, the cue is an invitation for the next behavior, and the cue also reinforces the behavior that just preceded it if it is a true cue taught with positive reinforcement because the animal wants me to give that cue because it predictably, reliably leads to more good things. So the animal is delighted when I give the cue to touch the target because that leads predictably to reinforcers, to, re to, this, to the reinforcement process. So that makes sense to me. I think overall, our understanding of what it is that we're doing has evolved and developed, in, thanks in large part to people like Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, who comes to the Clicker Expo and, and, and helps us to understand more clearly the science behind it, and that our understanding of these things has definitely evolved. So when we first, you know, we it, early on, we would say, we give a cue, we get the behavior, we click and we reinforce. And that leads us to think of the click as something other than a cue. That we, that linguistically it was a misdirection. So we treated, we thought of the click as something unique and separate from the cue. The cue happened before, and I'm going to put it in quotes, the behavior. And the reinforcement was, it's almost like the, the reinforcement wasn't a behavior. It was a thing, yeah. which is Mary's point. Yeah. And what, what I was going to say is, well, a minute ago, you were talking about predictability and how our animals like for things to be predictable and they're looking for those patterns. And what I often see happening when, I'm, when I watch videos of people who are using treatless clicks is say you're clicking every time the animal does the correct behavior, but you're only giving a treat every third time or every fourth time about. At that point, the click no longer has any information for the animal that food is coming soon. And what often happens is the animal starts looking for hand movements, movements of your shoulders, other things like that that tell the animal food is coming soon. And that essentially becomes a new clicker. And the new marker the, signal. The new marker signal. And, and that little box that you're sounding, the animal may just learn to completely tune that out. But it's very satisfying for the person. Yes. The way I think about it is I would be a little uncertain if stoplights, if red on a traffic light did not always mean stop and green did not always mean go. I, I think there, there are a lot of ways that we can create, quote, variability in our training where we, we don't mess with that contingency. And I actually have developed sort of a rule, which can be flexible at times, but after one of the art and science of animal training conferences, somebody had posed the question of what is trust? And then I said, oh, it's predictability. And someone else piped up and said, but you have to decide what part of the behavior cycle is going to be predictable and what's going to be unpredictable. And I thought about that and I realized that when I'm training and I'm doing it well, I only make changes in one part of the behavior cycle. So if I'm shaping behavior, I'm going to do it in a familiar, well-known location that the animal is comfortable in. Because I'm going to be saying, the behavior's not going to stay the same. We're going to change it a little bit. We're going to do a little this, do a little that. And I will make sure that the reinforcement process is familiar and clear to the animal. So they're not uncertain, how's that, where am I going to get my reinforcer? How am I going to get my reinforcement? And if I'm going to introduce a variation in the reinforcement process, whether it's that I'm going to feed down low to encourage you to stretch your head down, 
or I'm going to feed off to the side to displace your head and encourage a weight shift. I'm going to spend a little time letting them know that that's how the reinforcement is going to happen and I won't ask for any variability in the behavior while I'm introducing that change in the reinforcement process. And then if I'm going to change the antecedents, if I'm going to take it to another location, a new location in particular, I'm not going to ask for anything new in the behavior. I'm going to go I'm going to go take the horse to the horse trailer and I'm going to ask for plain simple targeting. I'm not going to ask for anything new and different and I'm going to deliver the reinforcement in a way that the horse knows and is comfortable with. And that way if there is any issue with the reinforcement if the horse is snatching the treats or something oh I have clear information that this is a bit too much and we need to back off because uh, you know I've gone to this location I'm using a really familiar well-known behavior that the horse knows easy peasy I can do this one but ooh, I'm a little unsure about things so I'm a little snatchy with the treat taking I say, oh, this environment's a bit too much. How can we dial things back so that that cycle is nice, we have a good clean loop in this new environment? And that's become sort of my rule that I look at, what am I going to vary in this session or with this particular iteration of working on a behavior? I think that's superb and very wonderfully. It brings us to one of the other questions that, people asked, I think it was one of the first questions that people asked where I said, Mary, would you like to be the one to tackle that question? And it was on emotions, emotions and emotions being classically conditioned. And I've forgotten the, the details of the question. You may remember them more clearly, but it actually doesn't matter what the question was specifically because Cindy's just given us a lovely lead into emotional behavior and how we over time have changed how we think about emotions, how we talk about emotions, how we think of the shaping of emotional behavior. So Mary, I'm going to turn the mic over to you for that one. So a lot of people, I think originally and still sometimes today, you hear people talk about emotions as being reflexes or being classically conditioned. So, Or part of the animal. Or part of the you animal. Know, the, it's that whole labeling thing of, well, this is a grumpy horse or a fearful horse. This, this is a fearful horse, a reactive dog. That somehow it's almost like, well, he's a chestnut. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, there's some quality, that permanent quality of this animal that is that emotion. Yeah, and then so when we are looking at the emotions or the emotional behavior from that viewpoint, it's that something happens in the environment and that triggers the emotional reaction. Right. And because he's a fearful horse, he's the one with his tail up in the air racing around the arena because he's a fearful horse. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so there's another way to look at emotions though, which I learned originally from Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz and from Dr. Joe Lang, but it comes originally from the work of Gold Diamond and Skinner and some of the other behavior analysts. And this is the view that emotions are a product of the contingency. And so when I say contingency, I mean the whole antecedent and cues and then the behavior and then the consequences that follow, importantly, that whole unit is what creates the emotions. So uh, just a simple example would be that usually when we're using positive reinforcement, that creates happiness, positive emotions, curiosity, approach. If we enter into extinction where reinforcement now is no longer coming, that often creates frustration, confusion, even anger. anger and rage in our animals. So from this standpoint, the emotion and the emotional behavior is a product of the whole big picture 
of the contingency and that the consequences are help driving the emotions that occur. Right. So if, if I'm using positive reinforcement and I am doing something that I'm familiar with, such as having my horse touch a target, uh, and I'm clicking and my timing is reasonable and I'm getting the treats out of my pocket in a reasonable fashion, and my horse is having a lovely, enjoyable time, and then I start to shift uh, and I think, oh, I'm going to teach this other thing, and I'm not following Cindy's rule. I've changed and added distractions to the environment, and while I've added distractions to the environment, I'm teaching a new behavior, but I don't really know how to teach the new behavior. I haven't thought it through very much, and now my, my timing is off because I'm, my criteria aren't clear, and so my animal is in an extinction process, and all of a sudden my animal that was very eager and engaged with me is grabbing the treats. I'm seeing behavior that I would call confused, frustrated, and I get a really clear read on that because, oh my, my horse has just turned away and wandered off to the far end of the arena. So I would, I'm, I'm still a positive reinforcement trainer, but under one set of conditions, I have a horse who's engaged with me, and under another set of conditions, I have a horse who's leaving for the other end of the arena. That would be an example of what that means and how that changes. I've, I've put my, my animal into an extinction process. I still have treats in my pocket. I'm still clicking and treating. I still have all the kindness in the world. But in that moment, I have just, because of the lack of clarity in my training, my animal is from his learning perspective, learner's perspective, he is in an extinction process and his emotions track that. I'll give another example, just because we were talking about reinforcement as a process earlier. Say you always click and hand the horse the treat right under his nose. And now today you decide I'm gonna click and I'm gonna hold the food out here so the horse now has to take three steps to go get the treat. If your horse doesn't understand that and doesn't understand that he has to walk over to get their treat and he's frustrated and he can't figure out, it may take him a little while to, to, to figure out the new reinforcement delivery that you've just thrown into the picture. And now to him, it feels like extinction. And so you would get start getting this frustration and all of these negative emotions. So let's just take positive reinforcement. That's a simple one. So, so usually you hear people make the argument that we should use positive reinforcement because it creates this happiness, this curiosity, this seeking behavior that the animals just really like it. But if, we're, if our criteria is too high, if we have poor timing, if other things are going on, we can be using completely positive reinforcement. No punishment no negative reinforcement. We're using 100% positive reinforcement, but the animal is still not happy and is giving us signs that say emotionally he's frustrated or he's confused or he's unhappy with the situation. So I don't think we can say positive reinforcement is happiness. I don't think it's that black and white. I follow a lot of the sort of popular conversations that go on around this, and I think it's really important to keep in mind that the reinforcement processes or the, the processes of operant learning, you know, positive reinforcement, positive punishment, negative reinforcement, negative punishment, those are based on contingencies. And, and I think what's happened is people have now conflated the idea that, well, only something the animal likes can be a positive reinforcer and therefore, if you're delivering something the animal likes, he must be happy. And if he's not happy, then it's not something the animal likes. But it might be something the animal likes, but you've set up a contingency that's not effective. So when Mary's talking about the fact that, you know, the criteria are inappropriate for the training situation, it, it, you might say, you're not using positive reinforcement because the horse isn't happy, but you could still have behavior increasing. So, so the, the, the quadrants don't judge. They're just science. They're just, I mean, they're just statements of what happens. So 
Positive reinforcement is that we add something after the behavior and the behavior increases as a result. So perhaps I'm trying to teach the horse to touch a target, but my timing's bad, my criteria's too high, all sorts of other things are going on. It may be at the beginning my horse very rarely touches the target, and by the end he's very frequently touching the target, but as well there's ears back, he's grabbing at me, there's all sorts of other behaviors going on that tells me my horse is not happy, but at the same time, there is positive reinforcement going on. So, so just because there's nothing in the definition of positive reinforcement that says it's going to create happiness. And which brings us really to the, to the real reason to be thinking about this. It's not the quadrants, because the quadrants can get you sometimes very locked in or stuck because the world is more complex than I'm purely in one quadrant or I'm purely in another quadrant. The world is more complex than that. But what we really want to be taking away from this is this distinction between emotions and emotional behavior. So this is what I think Joe Lang really highlighted for us at the Art and Science of Animal Training conferences and that Jesus has highlighted for us and that Dr. Susan Friedman has been highlighting for us with her presentation this year on emotions. So, you know, this is this is what's really being brought to our attention is that uh, emotions were, that was the Skinner's black box, that we can't know the private events of another individual. So I don't know if Mary's sitting next to me, how she is feeling, whether she is feeling, I know she's probably feeling tired because we were up really late every night during the clinic in, in conversation. But you know, when I've got a group of people in a clinic and they're looking interested, maybe they're just looking interested because they, they're, they're polite people, but they're actually thinking, oh, when is she gonna stop talking? This is really uh, nonsense. Why did I sign up for this course? But they're polite, so they uh, their body language just indicates that oh, this is really nice. And but inside they're thinking something totally different. None of us know that. If somebody says, "Oh, I was really happy," I don't know what their happy means. I know what my happy means, but I don't know what somebody else's happy means or somebody else's sad means. And I love Joe's in his talk where he said, you know, if you if you go to a doctor, they'll normally ask on a scale of one to 10, how much pain are you in? And if somebody says, oh, it's a, it's a eight, that really doesn't tell you anything in absolute terms about the level of pain. Because if I, I'm one of those people that I'm like the horses where, you know, a, a horse really is very good about not showing their pain or their injuries. So I tend to be one of those people that if you say, well, you know, how's your, um, how are you feeling? You've just been knocked about or something. Uh, Oh, it doesn't hurt. It's fine. Doesn't hurt. Whereas somebody else would be, oh, I, I need an ambulance. So what he's really saying is when you say it's an eight or you say it's a one, you're asked, you're, you're indicating the level of intervention that you are asking for. And I loved that. It's the level of intervention that you're asking for. And and so if we can't know the private events of somebody else, to be able to say, well, that horse is grumpy, or that horse is, is afraid, or that horse is, is happy, whatever. But what we can observe is emotional behavior. And that's the real piece that's important. That's in part what Cindy was describing, is um, is what is the emotional behavior that I'm observing? So I can say, what does calm look like to me? Not is that animal calm, but what does calm look like to me? And so when I have a horse who's standing on a mat, is he standing in this sort of uh, 
vibrating vibrating that was the word thank you Cindy vibrating energy of I'm standing still do you see how actively I'm standing still and 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 I'm just exploding with stillness there's an interesting image exploding with stillness and and I might look at that going ah not quite what I had in mind and so what does calm look like if I had if I saw a horse that I thought was calm and at ease in the world, what would it look like? And could I shape towards that? So Mary, do you want to add anything from the from well, your world? One one little thing I was going to add is, you know, you're talking about the private events and we can't know what emotions other people are feeling. One other thing that I remember from that talk that Joe Lang gave at the Art and Science and Animal Training Conference I think it was towards the very beginning, he said, a lot of people used to say, oh, animals don't have emotions. And of course, we can't ever know what our animals are feeling exactly. But then he said, turn to your neighbor. How do you know your neighbor actually has emotions? <laughs> so, so I, and that, I think that really helped drive it home for me that, you know, it's, we, we can't, I can't know what you're feeling. I can't know what Cindy's feeling, but we can see those those emotional behaviors. And so when we're, when we're shaping behavior, it's really important to make sure we're not just looking for the target touch or we're not just looking for the head down, but that we're taking the whole animal into consideration. Right. I, I go out, I'm very concerned with the emotions of my animals or with their emotional behavior. I want them to at least appear like they're happy and relaxed. So my goal is to see how can I change the contingency so that I am seeing emotional behaviors that are more of the quality that suggest to me my horses are happy, relaxed, feeling good about things. And I do shape for that. With many of my dog clients, I know like chin rests are very popular now, and I will shape a very relaxed chin rest behavior in a dog to give the owner a way that they can physically connect with their dog because everybody wants to pet their dog. And I usually end up seeing dogs that are overstimulated by the petting. And then they get excited, then they start grabbing people and leaping around. So instead we shape this very relaxed chin rest behavior so that people can just hold their hand out, the dog will come, rest his chin, and settle into it. And people love that. It gives them a way to have that tactile connection with their animal. It gives them a way. And with my horses, I shape them to bring their forehead to my palm and relax into it. It's a little bit less in, less involved than Alex's hugs, but it's the same idea. And I've seen that be very influential and very helpful to both the animals and the humans involved in the relationship. And that addresses the question earlier when we were saying, I want to be a positive reinforcement trainer, but I'm just learning at this moment and my criteria shifts are too big. My There's some issues in my handling. And so I'm seeing behavior. Yes, my horse is touching the target, but I'm also getting some other behavior that I'm not liking. So what this allows me to do is to look at, oh, my horse is grabbing the treat. First, that might be an easy one. So that I would read that as a sign of, of frustration. So I would give that the indicator of this, under these, these conditions, it would make sense to me that an individual might be feeling frustrated. And if I played the portal game, which is one of the things we did this weekend, we played a lot of portal, so much fun. Anyway, that's we'll, we can go down that rabbit hole in a minute. But so if, if I've played any of the training games or portal, I would know that, gee, when my the person who was teaching me was unclear, I felt really frustrated. So under these conditions, when I was feeling frustrated, and now my animal is under similar conditions, which I'm unfortunately causing because I'm not clear in my criteria of what I'm clicking, 
then it's a fair bet that he's probably feeling frustrated and his frustration is expressed through this behavior of grabbing for the treats. Let me go set up a video camera and watch myself. Oh, I can see clearly. I would be confused too because I haven't a clue what I'm why I just clicked that. So let me go play some portal. Let me go have a cup of tea and think about what it is that I want to train. Let me work on my handling skills. Let me practice getting my treat out of my pocket so that when I go back to my horse, my, my side of the equation is clearer. What I'm doing is less likely to create frustration in my horse and more likely to create oh this is a fun game so but what I needed to observe was the emotional behavior that was being expressed by my animal the grabbing at the treat the the looking away the long hesitations the in the dog the drooping tail the lack of energy so what would I read as, what does happy look like? What does calm look like? What does, I've got it, I understand it look like. And if I'm not sure, one of the great ways of figuring it out is to go play Portal and to watch people, what people do. And that'll help you to identify it. We've talked about Portal, but not everybody's going to know about Portals. And since Mary is here, Mary, do you want to do a quick, what is Portal? Okay, yes. I did tell you that I was going to interrupt today's conversation when we got to this discussion of portal. Mary truly is our portal master. So rather than add this on to what is already a very long conversation, I think it's better that we wait until next week. And that's when we can really treat ourselves to a full discussion of portal. If you want to get a jump start on learning about portal, go to behaviorexplorer.com. And if you're interested in our new Listen and Learn audio course on behavioral analysis, go to our website, equosity.com. You can read more about the course, and you can also sign up for it. Again, that's equosity.com. For this week and last week, I've been sharing with you some recordings that were made at one of my clinics. And as you all know, because of the coronavirus, we can't actually hold our usual spring clinics, at least not in the usual way. So coming up at the end of May, I'm going to be experimenting with a virtual clinic. Rebecca Schultz would have been organizing a clinic for me in North Carolina, but since we can't gather there in person, we're going to get together via the internet. So we're going to be following a similar format to the one that we use in the clinics, except, of course, we're not going to be directly as a group working with horses. So we're going to be meeting up Friday evening, May 29th, for introductions. And that way we'll get to know one another, we'll get comfortable with the Zoom platform. And then Saturday morning, we'll meet up again via our computers. We're going to be having a mix of discussions and presentations. I'll start out Saturday morning with a presentation on extinction. Then we're going to take a long break for lunch, and that will give everyone time to catch up with their families, to spend a little time with their families, and also to do some training. So we'll have an assignment from the morning that people can work on in the early part of the afternoon. And for some people, that's going to mean they're working directly with their horses and hopefully videotaping. But for people who can't get to their horses, they can always work with the family dog, the family cat, the family, whoever is hanging around. And then we'll get back together again for a discussion of the morning's training assignment. And I'll do a present second presentation. This one will be on loopy training. Then we'll finish up the day with another training assignment. Sunday morning, we'll get back together again. We'll discuss the previous day's training, and then I'll share another presentation. We'll send people off with another training assignment, and then in the afternoon, we'll have a final presentation. 
that one's going to be on cues evolve out of the shaping process. We'll discuss the training assignments that people have been working on over the weekend, send people off with some homework, and we'll finish up with some aha moments from the gathering. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be an interesting experiment. We've decided that we're going to restrict this to a small group, so we only have a couple of spaces left. I want to make this truly an interactive experience and not just another webinar that you passively watch on your computer. If you'd like to learn more, email me and I'll get you connected to Rebecca. So I think that's it for announcements. Go to behaviorexplorer.com for portal. Go to equiosity.com for the Listen and Learn audio course. And go to my website, theclickercenter.com, to connect with me about the virtual May 29 through May 31 clinic. So thank you for listening and stay well.